Blog Talk Radio. Hardy's Happy Hour isn't your average happy hour. From 2 to 5 p.m., double sliders are only a buck twenty-five. Call it a charbroiled hour, a double beef hour, a whole lot of melty cheese hour. Call it what you want. Happy Hour at Hardy's is a good call. Offer for a limited time and only between 2 and 5 p.m. Price and participation may vary. That's not included. Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Basser Hour. The Basser Hour is an in-depth look at things affecting today's veteran. The Basser Hour is sponsored by www.hadit.com. If you need help with the VA, log on to hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Jay Basser. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Basser Hour. I'm your host, Jay Basser. Today is going to be an interesting show. We have our co-host, Mr. Gerald Cook, out of Missouri. And we have a special guest speaker, Dr. Craig Bash. And Dr. Bash has got a sidekick, and I guess his name is Bill Crager. And uh, Bill's right. been a VA person for a long time. <laughs> so uh, when we get the show started, how you doing today, Dr. Bash? I'm good, I'm good. You guys got any good. topics you want to talk about? And we can uh, run down your, uh, uh, we can keep on the Bash Bulletins, or we can actually... Uh, we can venture off and get some good advice on how to effectively file your claim so that the person who works at the VA can make it easier to adjudicate. Is that a, is that a good possibility? Yeah, let's take a look. we got Bill Trigger here. Bill, you want to tell me a little of your background? Well, well sure, sure. I, uh, I was a uh, Marine for a few years, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, began helping vets with their claims uh, as a certified service officer for the Marine Corps League. And uh, from there, I went with the uh, state of Maryland and to Paralyzed Veterans of America, started representing claims and monitoring health care in the hospitals and representing appeals at the Board of Veterans Appeals and got to admit it to practice in the uh, Veterans Court. Um, and then I uh, took an opportunity with the uh, VA itself as a decision review officer in what is now called Peels Resource Center in Washington, D.C., and uh, retired just a few months ago. <laughs> Known Dr. Bash a long time. We've worked well in the past, and uh, um looking forward to helping him out with uh, some of the cases that come to his attention. So one of, the, one of the things you taught me a long time ago is you said always try and make the case easy for the reader. You want to try and talk <laughs> yeah. about that a little bit? <laughs> well, sure. Um, I I think if if we start if if we think about what VA acquires of those raiders, we can understand how to get our cases favorably resolved and the easiest way possible. And I think one of the most important things is the evidence. Um, I found over the years that vets think they have a pretty good claim, but they don't fully understand that you've got to have, in many cases, some sort of medical evidence to back up what you're saying. Now, if we present those kinds of evidence and VA rules changed over the years to allow private physicians to fill out those kinds of forms and uh, express their opinions on topics. And, and now we can front load a claim with all the evidence and argument necessary. Um, and VA has initiated a project to accelerate those claims. And uh, I think it's, it's in everyone's interest to make certain they get the proper advice and get the proper evidence and submit it all to begin with so you don't ever find your way into that um, appeal process, which takes so very long. Uh, would that be the uh, fully developed claim? Uh, yes. Um, that's exactly what I had in mind. And I can say that it works because it happened to me. <laughs> they uh, they actually 
um, granted my claim for increase and started paying me within one month from when I filed the claim. And I was well, pleasantly surprised. Real. Yes, it works. It works. Now, that People must be through. Pardon? Oh, Bill, you've only been doing it for 40 years, so you, you got it right, right? One month. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, Bill, the Bill's been doing this for a long time and knows kind of what the different rules are. But what did, in your case, Bill, you you got good medical opinions, good evidence, right? Yes. Um, this this particular claim, um, you know, I was uh, service-connected for my ankle. And I went in and had an ankle replacement surgery, you know, a metal joint with a plastic disc in it and things like that, which gives you a temporary 100% for a period of one year. And what I did was to assemble all my private records of care, reference my VA care, and uh, submit that claim through my representative. And um, it was so straightforward and simple that the claim was uh, processed extraordinarily quickly. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yes. And we we can... Veterans can do that if if they get the help from a um, accredited representative, submit it with the uh, through that representative, and uh, have all the evidence necessary for VA to decide the claim. Um, and I've I've always practiced that way when I was uh, presenting claims to VA. I always knew what the rater needed in order to grant the claim. And gave it to him right up front. Well, unfortunately, not enough veterans get started off on the right foot, uh, being able to supply that. You know, first of all, they're not knowledgeable, and they're uh, some of them are actually miss informed and that's where they get in trouble and that's how these claims drag on for years and years because uh, uh, once they start denying them it, it kind of uh, puts a stigma on, on the claim I believe uh, they take extra looks at it and they they seem to want a more additional uh, evidence than what you have in your possession. You're right, Jay. Hey, Bill, how, You're right. Yeah, Doc? Hey, Bill, how, how does it work? Like, if a if a claim gets denied, like he was just talking about, and it goes back and gets granted later, does that show up as an error on the radar? Is that part of why they don't want to change them? Or is, how, how does that work? No, that's not. Um... Um, a different opinion in the future does not. Um, in fact, raiders would uh, rarely ever know the outcome of an appeal. Um, if uh, if an appeal goes to Washington, um, typically the majority would be remanded by the Board of Veterans' Appeals um, for further development of the evidence and re-adjudication. Um, it would not go back to that original office in most cases. It would go to the Appeals Resource Center where it would be revisited. And so the original decision maker would not be involved and would likely not know what the subsequent outcome was. What if it's a CUE, like a clear unmistakable error? Does that go back to the radar or is that not a error either? No. No, uh, a claim for clear and unmistakable error is a new claim. And upon receipt, it's adjudicated by typically someone who was not previously involved. Mm. That's interesting. 
makes a lot of sense, though, to do it that way. Well, it does make to sense, the, and that's why you keep running into the same problems. Uh, you know, I got a judge. I've had this judge for 15 years, and she keeps remanding the claim back uh, for further development, but nothing ever gets done to it. <laughs> And they said on oh, two or three years and then send it back up to the judge. Now, that's been going on yes, for years. I, so, you know, that yes, would work wonderful if like, they would change judges out. You know, get a judge that could read and uh, maybe yes, understand. Uh, I, I understand. Yeah, I understand. Someone new and therefore impartial. Um, there was a very interesting case decades ago that uh, resulted in some changes at the regional office level because of that. Um, the, uh, the the judge in that case, I think the name uh, was Semenchuk, and um, he came in to VA and was denied, and he initiated an appeal and he asked for a hearing. And he had a hearing at the regional office with the same people who denied him in the first place. And he filed suit. And he argued that his constitutional right was to have his case reviewed by someone not previously involved and therefore impartial. And um, as a result, the VA initiated what was originally called the Hearing Officer Program. And then that evolved and became the position of decision review officer that we have today. Hmm. That, but they left, they didn't change. Maybe in that particular case, they might have changed the judges, but not in all cases they don't. Well, let me explain that we're not, we're not speaking of the judges at the Board of Veterans' Appeals. We're speaking at the regional office level. And, and so the the original raiders who decide the claim would not then be involved with the appeal. It would be done by a decision review officer in, in some cases when you ask for a hearing. Uh, the, the Board of Veterans' Appeals was not affected by that particular case. Okay. I, I understand mm. what you're saying. They're mm. actually two different entities. Yeah. Now, what is yeah. the, what is what is the authoritative level of a DRO? I mean, are they? I do. I mean, do they have the capacity to make a, a complete new decision with uh, you know no backlash? Or how does that work? Yes. Um, when an appeal is made to the decision review officer. They review and they make a new decision, and that is defined in regulation. Um, I can probably call that up on my computer here shortly, if <laughs> you bear with me. But the, um, the decision review officer is empowered to grant the appeal at that moment, is empowered to order additional development if that was deficient, is empowered to find that a prior decision was clear and unmistakable error. And and so there is um, a rather broad general authority given to the decision review officers. Mm. So a lot of cases I see the veteran, um, you know, has a claim for some disability but his symptoms match up with a different disability and so the DRO can't really change the diagnosis in that case he needs to just get a new medical opinion and try and clarify the diagnosis right that's correct a decision review officer just like Raiders and Board of Appeal, Board of Veterans Appeals judges may not use their own opinions to resolve medical questions. They must point to independent medical evidence in the file to support their conclusions. 
So a case where the diagnosis is incorrect, correct, is that's a big problem. I think that's part, probably where the veterans get off on the wrong foot a lot, a lot of times because they don't really know medicine well enough to know exactly what to claim as far as it matched up with their symptoms, you know. True. True. Um, you know, like like for an example, um, some veterans who might uh, might feel like they've suffered some emotional trauma in service and may now have post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of that, um, they would not have the requisite training and knowledge in medicine and psychiatry to be able to diagnose themselves. And so the veteran may claim post-traumatic stress disorder, but in fact, the veteran may suffer from a different kind of an anxiety disorder or depression or or some other diagnosis. Um, the adjudicator, that is the decision review officer, the rater, the, the BVA judge, they must point to what the medical experts provide in the way of a diagnosis. And I've seen innumerable cases where the veteran says, I am um, not suffering with that diagnosis that the VA examiner says I have. I suffer with PTSD. Well, that kind of argument uh, must be substantiated by a competent medical source, meaning someone trained and experienced in medicine in order to provide the alternative diagnosis and explain why the prior diagnosis may not have been correct. So in other words, they need to they need to go see uh, perhaps an outside psychiatrist. It would not necessarily have to be outside. Um, in fact, I have adjudicated cases where I resolve a difference of opinion between two VA physicians, where one presents me with one opinion and another presents me with an opposing opinion, and then as a decision review officer, I would then be required and and permitted to choose which one of those doctors I side with. So how how do you resolve the issue of two opinions, like one from a nurse practitioner or a PA and one from a physician? What's your philosophy on that, or how did you do that? Well, VA actually has guidance on that in the Adjudications Manual, M21, and it provides guidance on how to weigh the value of the evidence. Um, credentials, the degree of expertise of the opining expert, that's, that's one of the criteria that are identified as, as um, relevant for consideration. Um, the reasoning offered is often very crucial. Like if one doctor says this uh, is related to service and gives no explanation, but another says it's not related to service and provides a very persuasive narrative to explain why, one would naturally tend to go with the negative opinion in that circumstance. But they wouldn't have to, would they? If the uh, the veteran no. had uh, other evidence that would kind of help support his uh, uh, favorable doctor. I mean, you know, there could be other things that fell into the picture or other evidence. You're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. It's It's you're not compelled as the decision maker to favor one over the other. Um, You're not compelled to agree with uh, a medical opinion because it's provided from a VA source over a private source. It um, It is an exercise of judgment. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, 
few years ago, several years ago, matter of fact, the VA came out with a rule about post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think the rule stated that the veteran could not actually go outside the VA and get a medical opinion from an outside source unless that source is a treating physician. Is that, is that still part of the part of the game, or is that something that changed? Well, that, that rule was specifically under the revised criteria regarding the stressor. Um, when right. VA changed the rule to allow a grant of service connection without proof of a stressor event, VA then relaxed the standard to use this fear of hostile action. Um, and if it's just basically consistent with history and otherwise credible, uh, VA can grant service connection for post-traumatic stress disorder without actually verifying the stressful event. VA limited that grant to only VA examiners. So if you validate, if you validate the stressful event, does that allow you to have an outside examiner or outside opinion? Yes. If, if your stressor event is substantiated by evidence, um, VA is empowered to accept a medical opinion linking your diagnosis to that event from any competent medical source. Okay. There may be a few people... Yes, that that might be confusing to some people because some of the early training didn't make that differentiation clear. And uh, there was uh, some confusion circulating about that early on. All you PTSD folks, listen, take heed to this, listen to what this guy says. He knows what he's saying, so I don't want to post that on the side and get, oh, thank it, you. Uh, get it annotated because uh-huh. that's good. I mean, that's, thank you. Um, nice compliment. Thanks. <laughs> uh-huh. you know, we, we compliment you for good, you know, and for bad, though. You know, of course, I think a person yeah, claim, yeah, yeah. You know, your claim is only has as much strength as your representation, and you, you need to have strong representation in order to get your claim, I think, settled through the VA, and the person that does your claim should have enough experience and knowledge and abilities to know, you know, what you're claiming and how to do your claim. But I've seen so many claims that uh, are done either at uh, one of the posts or another place where alcohol is involved, and by the time you get done, you claim for PTSD, you're able to walk out of there and claim for a broken foot. <laughs> <laughs> when you walk in with a swagger and out with a stagger, those old joints. <laughs> yeah. I've seen it. Believe me, I've seen it, and I've seen some crazy stuff in my day, though. Uh, and uh, but fortunately, I've had enough education and knowledge to being a home review employee myself. You know, we can have, you know we can navigate the system. Uh, it's complex. You need many it's shelves in. of books. Yes. Many or, shelves of books. Or, or many pages of you need to claim it's not on your server. <laughs> That's true. Mm-hmm. And the more your complex claim you've got, the longer it's going to take you. Yeah. Um, the more complex that, that your claim is, the longer it's going to take. That, that could be true, particularly if um, you are seeking many issues. You know, um, I believe when last we saw of it, I think uh, each claim was averaging about five to seven issues. And if you file a claim and you claim 20-some issues, um, that, that, that may result in some delay. Um, and let, me, let me explain this. We all know that we have a great many veterans seeking benefits. It is therefore important for the decision makers at VA to move quickly on those claims. And so 
VA has certain production requirements for their employees to keep up with the pace. So if in the course of a day, the individual has five claims waiting for a decision, and four of them are two or three issues, and one of them is 20 issues, in most cases what happens, the rater will work the three or four cases to meet their production and then begin work on the very complex one for part of the day. Then set that aside and the next day work two or three claims that will help them reach their production and then go back and start working on that 20-issue claim again. It's an efficient use of their time, and it's somewhat necessary because they have to maintain that production. And so the cases that are very large with many, many, many issues, the raiders tend to take a nibble at it, a little nibble each day. And so by, by as a result, that claim sits longer on average. What would you do, Bill? Is that the way you do it? That's the way most everyone would do it, yes. Um, you know, if if you were to sit on a a 25-issue case and just work it until completion, it might take days. And then you would have to find a, a lot of simple cases to adjudicate very fast to in order to catch up with your production requirements. Um so that's, you know, it's it's probably not in the individual's interest to claim quite so many issues. Uh, they certainly have the right, um, but I recognize that that could induce some delay. So is one is four issues one one patient case? How is that? Is it ratio right? Okay. Hey Bill. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Is uh is four issues count as one patient, or is there some ratio, right? Well, there there are two methods of accounting, you might say, for what you might call the um, VA's inventory or the VA's work queue, where all these cases are. You can measure, and VA does from time to time, measure the number of veterans served or the number of issues served. And depending on um, the report you're reading, it may be reporting the number of veterans served or it may be reporting the number of issues served. And that, that varies from time to time and place to place depending on the, the need for the report. Um, so if you take, for example, the... Um, Board of Veterans' Appeals puts out an annual report, and you can read that annual report. It's available online just by Googling it. And you can read in there how the board differentiates and, and says, counting it one way, here's our results, and counting it the other way, here's our results. Um, so it's uh, probably worthwhile if uh, someone has the interest to to actually read the report done by the Chairman of the Board of Veterans Appeals each year and see what the board does with their cases. So as far as the Raiders work product, so he has to do uh, four, four patients a day or four cases? There's, there's some variability, right? That, uh, that, that was actually recently revised for most Raiders. Um, depending on an, an, an individual's level and experience, uh, they may initially be assigned and required to complete cases that will result in two points of credit per day. Um, a qualified rater would be required to do four and one quarter points of credit per day. And they may achieve that by perhaps doing one 20 issue case or five one-point cases or the way that the formula was set up. Now, that was recently revolved for raiders, but not decision review officers. Raiders now get 
a little better credit for the work they do. And decision review officers were, at the time of my retirement a couple of months ago, uh, still under the older system. So they uh, they were required to do 4.25 points per day. Um, so well, it does it work um, like, you know, as a doctor, I find a primary, primary issue, and then there'll be all these secondary issues that I bring in that most people don't talk about. If a reader, if a reader gets mm-hmm. a case, and he has all those secondary issues. Does he get does he get credit for adding those into the rating, or how do they deal with that? Yes, it's it's uh, a, it was a proportional system, where if an individual filed a claim for, oh, let's say, let's say um, three issues. Um, well, let's say the veteran filed a claim for one issue, and after it was adjudicated, it turned out to be three issues. Mm-hmm. Um, the rater would then have 1.5 points or credits towards their work for those three issues. If it grew to five issues, they would get two points. <laughs> if that, if that's, um, if that's clear, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Funny ratios. <clears throat> So it kind of have yeah. in the middle of the case, and they find a bunch of secondary issues. It kind of helps them with their points, which makes it, makes it more efficient. Which that makes sense. Sure, sure, sure. By the way, we were speaking before of the regulations governing PTSD adjudications. <clears throat> You'll find that at 38 CFR 3.304 F. And Maybe when you look into those patterns, okay, 38 CFR, 3.304 F. <coughs> F describes how VA is required to adjudicate PTSD claims for service connection. And... Only in the part, in F3 is the paragraph, only if you rely on the veteran's fear of hostile military or, or terrorist activity. Only in that section does it say the opinion must come from a VA uh, practitioner or contractor. Let's go back to that uh, the secondary condition again for a second. The um, yeah. so the rater goes along and he sees these secondary conditions, but if he doesn't have a medical opinion linking them, he can't. He has to either overlook them or get a get a medical opinion on point. All right, Bill. Generally speaking, it would be an error to overlook them. If an issue is raised by the evidence or expressly claimed by the veteran. Depending on the nature of the issue, it may either be incumbent upon the raider to take jurisdiction on that issue and either invite the claim, suggest to the veteran or ask the veteran if they want to claim that specific disability, or in other cases, um, such as complications of diabetes, it would be incumbent upon the raider to address in the decision all complications of diabetes um, that are shown in the record based on the medical evidence. It would not be necessary to the veteran to expressly claim those complications. So sometimes that depends on who the uh, medical examiner is. So for example, you have a nurse practitioner or a PA the guy has diabetes, they do an abbreviated exam and don't really talk about the peripheral neuropathy or the retinopathy or the nephropathy. Versus a doctor who might go through the detailed examination and talk about those issues, that gives the rater a lot more ammunition to look at to help him make his rating, right? True, it would. There is, however, some guidance that would prompt that exploration. If 
if VA were to receive a claim with service connection for diabetes, typically an initial evaluation would be performed and the DBQ for diabetes would prompt the examiner to identify complications that the patient suffers. Then, if need be, those complications would then be referred to a specialist in that area to address to and to quantify in order to derive the correct rating for the diabetes and all of its complications. So the rater would send it out to specialist from the DBQ? Yes, the DBQ is specifically designed to solicit a statement from the examiner on the uh, presence of uh, any complications. No. Now, so on the DBQs, uh, mm-hmm. I understand that they're not the same. If you get a CMP examination and they use a DBQ, it's different than they uh, send you, you use the form, I forget, you know, they're all different forms. Uh, the form you pull off the internet to give your doctor to fill out. Uh, is that right? They have two sets of DBQs? Um, there are many more than two. Uh, the, uh, DB, the DBQ is part of an evolution. And the original intent was to try to come up with a standardized examination report so that it would solicit the specific findings necessary to compare with the schedule for rating disabilities and in this way um, provide some consistency in the information being given by the examiners and improve the ability of the rater to use that report because that report is designed to solicit those specific findings that you find in the rating schedule. Um, and that's been expanding and and modifying and and that sort of process has been going on for quite some years now. So, Bill, like Gerald, like Gerald was saying, I've seen mm-hmm. internal DBQs that say, you know, for internal use only. But in those DBQs, they have like a lot of prompts for rationale and a lot of areas where they want the doctor to explain things more than they do on the DBQs that are available on the VA's website. Have you have you seen that or noticed that or how, what do you think? How how does that work? Well, I I can only say yes. I've seen different variations on the forms over time. Um, And my understanding is that those modifications were initiated in order to ensure the accuracy of the report and to solicit the best information possible to decide the claim. Now, having said that, you know, recognize this trying to take this the, the world of medicine and to mold that to fit the world of the of adjudication is not always going to be a comfortable process <laughs> no like if you take for example um, that part of the rating schedule dealing with mental health evaluations when VA promulgated that portion of the rating schedule back in the 1990s. Um, They chose examples of symptoms as uh, examples of the type of symptoms that would justify a higher or lower rating. And, And they put that list in the rating schedule. That list was never intended to be all-inclusive, okay? So a, a veteran may suffer with a symptom that is not on that list. And, and I, one of the things that, that always struck me as, as rather startling is the, the list 
Um, if you evaluate a veteran for PTSD, what kind of symptoms are we um, reviewing? Now, what typically is unique to PTSD is the phenomenon called the flashback uh, or intrusive recollections. Um, there might be uh, nightmares, but that might not be unique to PTSD. It may nonetheless interfere with sleep and cause debility. Um, now, if you look at the DBQs, um, sleep impairment is present on the list. Um, mood, you know, depression or anxiety, is present on the list. But nowhere on the list is the examiner prompted to report nightmares, flashbacks, or intrusive recollections that are typical for PTSD. Um, and, and so that's, that's problematic. That's problematic. And um, there uh, is very little um, latitude given to the rater to um, incorporate additional symptoms for the purpose of evaluating the disability that are not listed. And so that, that, that might be... Um, and if, if I had an opportunity to invite VA to review a DBQ, I'd probably want them to review that one. <laughs> well, the, the veteran should be afforded, I mean, uh, the DBQ you pull off the VA website should be mm -hmm. the same DBQ that a CMP examiner uses. Uh, and... You know, that's problematic because uh, you're dealing two different forms here. No, I agree, Jack. I agree. That's in CP examiners that use those ones that say internal use only. I don't understand why you have internal use only. That's what we're talking about. I yeah, haven't heard that question. Yeah. Yeah. You should get one, Bill. Back last year, I had an issue with my heart disease on service-connected support, and uh, I filed for an increase. I filed mm -hmm. a claim, and, uh, of course, you know, I got a response back, you know, did it online, and I fell under a full-developed claim because I attached information from my outside doctor with it. And uh, I had a recent diagnosis okay. of atrial fibrillation, some other stuff, and I get a note back from the VA, you need to fill this form out, which is a DBQ. So I opened it up, look, here's a DBQ for hypertension. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't do it. I've always I found for myself. It, you know, attempted to do it. Yeah, thank you, my DBQ friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, it's like I mentioned earlier with, with my own personal claim. I put it in; everything went just great. What What I didn't mention was that you know, the the letter actually said, "Here's your temporary hundred percent for your knee replacement." <laughs> That's forgivable. <laughs> with with the need for speed, with the need for speed, the the employees rush, and the more hurry you're in to try to get it done, more mistakes you're going to make. Um, and you know if if there's no harm, there's no foul. They they got everything right except in that one place it said need replacement. So I have absolutely no desire or intent to uh, <laughs> bring it to their attention. <laughs> well, what I did, I went online and I printed off the heart disease DBQ. I took it back to my doctor and had her fill it out. And uh, I submitted that. There you go. And, uh, it did knock me out of the uh, full developed claim process, but I got a decision in my six months. So I wouldn't, you know, didn't, didn't worry too much about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Things like that well, you know, we spoke um, we spoke of the fully developed claim. I actually filed mine on what's called the decision ready claim. Okay. I remember those. That's a newer, yeah, decision ready claim, and um, that that works. That works. Okay. That's good. Um, What's the difference, Bill? What's inner. the difference between decision ready and the fully developed? The decision ready claim 
compels VA to make the award within one month following receipt of the claim. Um, the fully developed claim does not. And it, it's rather a reward for using a service organization and completing the development for VA up front so they don't have to seek other information. And um, when you team with the person who knows what VA needs to make the decision and give it to them in a complete package, uh, it speeds their ability and the promise to get it done in a month gives you the incentive to take that approach to doing business with VA. What if they deny it? Do you have the right of appeal? Oh, of course. Absolutely. No question. No question. That would not impact your right to appeal in any way. I think I'll grab the legion and find my next one that way. (laughs) 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 Um, Dr. Bash, I want to give you guys a quick heads up. You guys know effective August 13, 2018, right? Any veteran designated 100% permanent and total and is physically able to do this may fly space available travel. Did you guys hear that? I haven't. Thanks for sharing it. Space okay. travel military? Yes, yeah, space travel military. You know, you know, you know, if you retired, you'd be 100% permanent and total. But yeah, but you have to be. Uh, able to ambulate upstairs and things like that unless they got a special plane, so you might want to check yeah. into it. And I don't think you can do it for business. you got to do it like, say, say if you want to fly out to uh, uh, Joint Base Pearl Hickam, you know, for a week out on the, on the island, you know, stuff yeah. like that, you know, yeah. you know, hurricane damage or whatever. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, That's not, good. And That's they, good. They have your yeah, little V8, they have V8 card. What, what do they need to Yeah, you got to have the, uh, you need the TAN ID card, you know, the DAV TAN ID card? Hmm. Have you got one of them, Dr. Flash? No, I got a, v, I got a little VA ID card. It's got my picture. I don't think You're 100%, right? Yeah. You're 100%, right? Yeah. Take yep, your yep, award yep. letter and go to, go to your nearest issuing base. Any base that issues ID cards under DEERS, take your yeah. award letter and go there and show it to them, and they'll make you an ID card. The same thing as commissary and exchange for this card. It's MWR. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I think it's form twenty seven sixty five. I believe I don't have it right in front of me. Documentation. But, yeah. You know, that's you hey, got so a lot I, of happy bits right now. Yeah. So how many how many hundred percent PNTs are there? Do you know? Any idea? Uh, no, I don't. No, no idea. I only know that I, I added to the ranks. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's the largest retro check you ever wrote, Bill? Um, actually, I don't write checks. I just make the decisions. You know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> I think. Uh, uh, I I think it was about uh, a little over three quarter million. Three quarter million. That was uh, that was like six months after I was employed there. <laughs> <laughs> Three quarter but million. Lucky you had your job, man. Check that devil on the outside, right, Bill? Well, you know, you know, I I benefited many years um, by um, serving with the Paralyzed Veterans of America, and Dr. Bash and Dr. Bodenbender and and other experts uh, were frequently giving us uh, education in in medical issues uh, like multiple sclerosis, which affects um, paralyzed veterans. And uh, so it it gave us some insight on what to look for and how to recognize when we might be dealing with a patient with multiple sclerosis. And so this case came to me then, then when I was a decision review officer, a case came to me about service connection for multiple sclerosis. Um, and 
from the education I received, um, the, I look at the VA examiner's report, and he opined favorably that the MS symptoms started in service. Okay. Um, he didn't spe- specify which service, but when I took the history, service records, and the opinion in context, it was clear to me he was pointing to a certain presentation of symptoms near the time of the veteran's discharge from active duty, even though he didn't expressly state that. And so I granted it. And um, that large of a check requires um, additional reviews from higher management. And they kicked it back and said, well, examiner didn't specify which which period of service. Um, so they they felt it was important to go back and ask the examiner, which I obeyed. And uh, the examiner came back and said, all of them. <laughs> okay, I, I granted it again. And by the time it got through that loop, uh, another... $100,000 retro. <laughs> so, um, no, but, you know, see, it's um, it's important for me. I've got to share with you the fact that um, there have been instances of fraud. Um, people on the inside and people on the outside of VA in uh, collaboration have at times... Um, Inspired and defrauded the government of payments. It, it, I've witnessed it. I've read of it. Um, and so, for that reason, it's reasonable for VA to have some checks and balances to review some cases, particularly ones with large retroactive awards, and, and just for common sense review to check for their authenticity. Um, I have no problem with that. <laughs> but... Um, I, I just was fortunate, and fortunately for that veteran, I was uh, able to find uh, and understand what the doctor intended and, and grant on that basis, where some people without that experience might not have been able to. Well, you, you really have to play this intellectual teamwork, you know? Like, we would teach you about the medical part, you teach us about the legal part, you know, and that, that intellectual teamwork is is really valuable because this is really a, a melding, like you said, of the legal with the medical. And it's, it's difficult. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and, and sometimes with, with something as complex as uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, the patient is often not the best source. They wouldn't know what to look for. <laughs> a lot of them have mental illness they can't use their memories or their logic and have a hard time weaving their way through the the, yeah. the cases. Yeah. yeah, I've often felt a great deal of sympathy for people with severe emotional distress and trying to deal with um, rather complex issues of medicine and law. It takes it takes a helping hand. Yes, it does. It really does. I look at the poor veteran who files this claim. You know, the veterans are just, you know, they're the young kids or their Vietnam folks are getting older and things like that, and they uh, file the claim. You know, they, they don't have medical knowledge and, you know, stuff like that, so it makes it difficult for anybody to file a claim. You know, so that's why, you know, it takes getting good help and, you know, getting good opinions and, you know, from somebody that knows the system and knows what to do, so it makes it uh, makes people like you guys come into play and makes you all very appreciated. Hey, Bill, you mentioned something yeah, we, about we're, we're talking about this idea of sixty-five thousand um, codes in medicine, and there's two thousand in the VA. And there's a gap. There's a gap there, like the rating schedule might say twenty percent or forty percent. There's a gap between those two things. You want to talk about that for a minute? Uh, you mean gaps in the rating schedules? Uh, on uh, evaluations, that are, uh, symptoms that aren't predicted or understood within the twenty percent to forty percent rating, like that, the, the space between. Oh, that. I see. I, I I think I understand what you mean. Um, 
VA has developed an electronic software program, and it's called Evaluation Builder. And its its use is mandated. Um, so the Evaluation Builder program in the employee's computer, uh, the employee is to enter the symptoms and manifestations from the VA examination and or private or VA treatment records, put those manifestations into the evaluation builder at those particular prompts. Evaluation, hit go, and the evaluation builder will then tell you how disabled the veteran is for that given disability. Um, for example, um, if we're evaluating the lumbar spine, and the veteran is able to forward flex to 60 degrees, it will spit out a 20% evaluation. Um, some other aspects of the evaluation are not programmed into the computer and require the reviewer to interpret or extrapolate um, the evidence available to apply the rating schedule. An example of this might be a additional loss of motion of the spine on use or during a flare-up of the condition. Um, now the DBQ prompts the examiner to offer an observation as to what that range of motion would be during flare-up or on use. And for the most examinations that I recall, the examiner is simply reporting that I cannot estimate that because I'm not examining him during a flare-up or on use. And so... Um, the veteran physically may be in, perhaps after the postman has been uh, delivering mail, now he can't forward flex more than 20 degrees and is entitled to a 40%. But the examiner can't observe that, and so he doesn't get that evaluation. And there, there are some gaps here and there like that. Oh, we're running close on time, John. Uh, Dr. Bash, you want to give out yeah. your contact information? Yep, Craig Bash. You can Google on me, Craig Bash, and then my email is drbash at drdoctr.com. Or uh, you can call Skipper Alex, my scheduler. Like Skip is 925-381-7561. And Alice is 925-408-7984. And uh, Bill's helping me with cases now. And uh, I want to thank Bill. I want to thank Bill for all his years of service, 40 years helping veterans. It's great. It's tremendous, Bill, work you Sure do. is. Yeah, well, thank I'm you glad guys. he's on your team. Uh, that'll really, you know, that kind of advice and knowledge is... Uh, you pay a lot to get it. Yeah, that's the golden. The, band, the band's back together again. Yeah. <laughs> well, the reunion tour. Yeah. The reunion tour. Yeah. <laughs> Bill and I, we worked together for about, about a decade ago, right? Bill, we were working for a while. We were PVA. Yes. For more. Yes, we uh, did, for years. For yeah. years, and we you were... I was successful in, in getting those claims uh, done correctly. Well, it's nice as the rule changed in about 96. When I started the PVA, they changed the rule to allow outside medical opinion. So that's right. I just started to do those those evaluations. So it was a good time. Yeah. Well, listen, Jim, we're completely about out of time, so I want to thank you all for coming on, and we'll do this again soon. I do appreciate it. Thanks right. for coming on, Bill. We appreciate your information. It's, it's very valuable. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Nice job, Dale. 